0: The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies, and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm director of ECFR, and this week we are talking about a new military crisis that is brewing in Ukraine around the Sea of Azov. We have an all star cast to help us make sense of what's going on, why it matters and what it means for European foreign policy. Down the line from London, we have Andrew Wilson, who's a senior policy fellow at ECFR and our resident Ukraine watcher. He once predicted that there would be an attempt by the Russians to retake Crimea and then it happened. And in fact, only a month ago predicted that there'd be another crisis in the Sea of Azov. So we can see um, uh, where he thinks the future will be going. Second up, uh, sitting next to me in Berlin is Kadri Leek, also a Senior Policy Fellow on ECFR's Wider Europe Programme, and she's about to fly off to Moscow to find out how this crisis looks in the Russian capital. And from Paris, we are joined by Niku Popescu, who is the relatively new director of ECFR's wider Europe programme, a post which he's returning to after a few years of exile working for the Moldovan Prime Minister and for the EU Institute of Security Studies in Paris and not only uh, has he done all those things but he's also been on the Sea of Azov in the last couple of weeks as part of an ECFR delegation to Mariupol, Ukraine and um, he can tell us what the situation looks like on the ground but to Kick us off. Maybe, Andy, you can tell us what has sparked this crisis.
1: Well, first of all, I guess, um, where is the Sea of Azov? It's um, northeast of Crimea, so it flows into the Black Sea, but is technically separate. Uh, according to an agreement of 2003, it's the shared waters of both Russia and Ukraine. They're the only two countries that border it. Uh, so Ukraine uh, as a whole, Crimea and Russia, Um uh, Russia annexed Crimea in 2014. Uh, then it began building a, a bridge across the narrow strait between the Sea of Azov and the Black Sea proper. That was finished in uh, early this year. It was built in a particular way that makes the passage of ships very, very difficult. Um, so since the spring, Russia has been able to control the flow of um, sea, sea traffic in and out, Therefore, affecting the economic viability of Ukrainian lands um, to the north and the whole um, status quo uh, militarily on land that's been kind of frozen more or less since 2015. But this threatens to destabilize everything, because as well as stopping shipping, Russia over the weekend, uh, seized Ukraine's tiny naval presence. Um, So it has three ships and 23 sailors uh, held captive. And Ukraine is threatening to declare martial law, either locally or throughout the whole of Ukraine today, a measure that it didn't take even in 2014. So this massively destabilizes um, the the situation economically, militarily and politically.
0: You've just been in Azov. Um and so could you tell that the situation was about to escalate and a third front was gonna open in the, the war between Russia and
2: Ukraine? Yes, but definitely was a feeling that something is going to happen around the sea. In a sense, the Ukrainians in Mariupol and Shirokin and that as if as of coast sea were quite calm about the risks around the land front line. So we're saying that, you know, the frontline on land has been consolidated, it will probably stay there for, you know, years and years ahead, but there was a definite sense that the Azov Sea is likely to become the third uh, frontline that Ukraine has, you know, the first being Crimea, the second being Donbass, and now a new frontline situation is being de facto, is emerging around the Azov Sea. There was definitely a sense of that, and just. You know, 10 days ago, we wrote an internal note for ECFR, for the ECFR council members, where we actually s- described that and almost predicted what, what happened this weekend. We predicted that of c is likely to emerge quite quickly as a source of uh, security tensions between Russia and Ukraine, and that it would pose a new major headache for European security with implications for, you know, a number of global issues, including you know, freedom of navigation in the South China Sea, for example. Why do you think
0: Russia has re-escalated this frozen, well, sort of semi-frozen conflict? Kathy? Uh,
3: to be honest, I, I struggle to make sense because um, I mean Russia is keeping an eye on Ukraine. They see that election campaign is happening and they definitely do not want to help President Poroshenko whom they think that he's running on anti-Russian ticket. But now they have done exactly that. They are sort of helping him by escalating and making his rhetoric about Russia give him additional credibility. Uh, so, of course, the situation was tense. And as, as Nico described, we... Uh, frontline on the land is, is well dark and basically immobile, but on the sea it was a new situation and both sides were trying to manoeuvre and outmanoeuvre the other side. So there was some natural escalation going there uh, on there, but uh, seeing how this has been handled uh, by Moscow. I mean, they have made it a big public thing. They have uh, called for a meeting of UN Security Council. They are loudly accusing Ukraine. So it is clear that they want it to be a prominent issue. And um, what is thinking behind it? Um, I mean, we can discuss different options, but I don't have, I confess, I don't have a very clear instinct.
0: So maybe before we do that, it's just worth, because not everyone's been following it that closely, what actually happened? Andy, do you want to tell us?
1: Well, um, Russia has been uh, stopping and delaying uh, naval traffic, uh, including mainly commercial, uh, over the summer. Uh, In September, Ukraine took the possibly risky decision to send... uh, a very tiny number of um, ships to protect uh, Ukrainian and uh, international naval traffic. I mean, Kadri's right. I can't figure out what Russia's doing either, but maybe it's a reaction to that. They don't want any uh, Ukrainian naval presence in the the area at all. Um, So that small naval mission arrived in September. So over the weekend... Uh, Russia decided basically to take it out while it was at sea. Um, So one vessel was rammed, uh, then others were captured after being fired at. Um, So the number of ships involved and sailors captured, um, uh, accounts vary on either side, but according to the Ukrainian side, as of yesterday, the Russians have seized three ships, and 23 sailors, and contact with them has been lost.
0: And has anyone got killed?
1: As far as we know, not yet. So,
0: so maybe one of you can also explain to the listeners why this isn't a kind of small earthquake in um, uh, what's the the joke? A small earthquake in Chile, nobody, um,
1: <laughs> nobody injured. Why is this big news? Well, it's, um, it destabilises the situation. Um, Ukraine and Russia are fighting a war, albeit undeclared, and Ukraine's regular army against mainly Russian proxies. Um, Since 2015, that situation has been stable on land. Uh, Now, as Niku says, a a third front threatens to destabilize that. And then if you're Europe or the West more generally, uh, either you have to do something to support ukraine um because rhetorically we have long always promised to do so or it makes it much more difficult to ignore or um, and get on with other stuff you know a a war that had looked um, peripheral and contained is now flaring up again
0: how much do you think europeans are going to blame the russians as opposed to blaming the ukrainians for sending a navy in and and um and i mean some people could say that they were the ones who were destabilizing the situation i'm sure that's what the russians will say
3: Russians are saying it yeah now it is interesting symmetrical situation but Russians are saying that Poroshenko is doing it because he is facing elections and he needs to be helped or maybe he hopes to postpone the elections and then actually many in Ukraine and also in the West they say that Putin is doing it because he has a rating problem I mean his rating is uh, as low or even lower than it was before annexation of Crimea uh, as some of you may still remember, back then uh, Putin's rating was collapsing fairly fast and he wasn't that popular president anymore. But then the annexation of Crimea uh, changed all that for a couple of years. And now the situation is back to where it was rating-wise. I, however, I think that these are somewhat primitive explanations. I mean, it is it is not that, that simply rating is what drives foreign policy I think both in Russia and in Ukraine, uh, the situation is 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 more complicated, and there are there are real life issues involved. Why is it important? I mean, it has some important international parallels with South China Sea, which is a major thing, uh, but also for Ukraine. I mean, Nikko is probably better place to discuss the trade that goes through the port of Mariupol and how important that is to Ukraine. So for Russia, to cut off trade from Mariupol harbour is, is one way to squeeze Ukraine economically uh potentially much more than they could by affecting Ukraine's trade with Russia, which they have been doing, and doing so much that Ukraine has become immune to those measures.
0: So, Nikki, you were there... Um Maybe you could talk a bit about that, but also about how this intersects with Ukrainian politics. Because I know you also went to Kiev and spoke to lots of people there, where the country is in a kind of pre-election fever.
2: Listen, I think, yeah, I think the "why now" question is a bit of a fake question. There has been a reality created around the Kerch Strait and access to the Azov Sea in the last year, and you know, with the annexation of Crimea almost five years ago, in the last year when the bridge basically, you know bridged the two shores uh, of the kerch strait between crimea and russia and for the the ukrainians had two possibilities one is to accept the new status quo give up on the right to trade and to go into the azov sea be it with military or civilian or commercial ships uh, which were increasingly blocked and delayed by the russians so for the ukrainians the dilemma either you accept the status quo stay quiet and basically, let you know large swaths of eastern Ukraine go deeper into the economic depression because they cannot trade through the ports of Mariupol and and Berdyansk. and you know, and keep everyone else quiet in Europe and the U.S. because they don't have a problem with Russia. And the second possibility for Ukraine was to more or less pretend they still have the right to go into the Azov Sea uh, and not accept the politics of Russian, you know, blocking of access into the Azov Sea uh, as as a legitimate type of behavior, right? Um, So what happened now is not just about this incident, because if we had no incident, the situation would have gradually consolidated as a situation where Ukraine is losing access to Azov Sea with major economic repercussions for a zone of Ukraine that is already, you know, half unstable um so it's not just about security right and the ukrainians of course did not do, want to accept the status quo and they have been trying for the last months and weeks and to try and consolidate and mobilize international public opinion and diplomatic interventions to help and mobilize and deblock access to the azov sea now you know this whole conversation of who is to blame or who is not to blame can drag on indefinitely but I think because Everyone has so many questions and so different interpretations around what happened. Probably the most logical way is to try and open this black box of azov Sea and Kerch Strait matters and open this space for international monitoring. So if Russia is confident in its own version of events, let it accept the OEC or the UN to monitor the situation, the security situation, the trade situation. If we uh, in Europe have questions about Russia or Ukrainian behavior, again, let us push for international monitoring of the situation there. And that is how, you know, we'll go beyond this question as to who benefits at this point. Is it Putin? Is it Poroshenko? Will it be Ukraine's future president? What we need is clarity, what we need is transparent rules uh, for access to the Azov Sea, not just for Ukrainian ships, but also for European ships, which are also delayed when they trade with Ukraine, because a lot of that trade is actually not, you know, Russia is constraining Ukrainian trade with the European Union, with the Middle Eastern states, uh, and none of that is legitimate. So basically a good dose of international monitoring of all situation will help everyone keep the situation under the lid and make sure or at least hope that the next incidents will not be bloodier than the incident of this weekend
0: so like a great thinker tanky you went straight to the um the heart of the solution but maybe we should work out a bit more what the what the uh, problem is and and w- what solutions people are looking for to, to, to which problems um because it looks to me like you know there's a ukrainian domestic story and i think we need to get deeper into that and understand why uh, poroshenko called for martial law that does seem to be a pretty wild thing to do if uh, he didn't even do it when crimea was annexed five years ago um so it'd be really good to get some more news from you and and, uh, andy on that but then the other point is on the foreign policy side. I mean, sending monitoring missions is is all well and good. But essentially, what's happening here is that there, if there is an escalation of the crisis, Ukraine's game is presumably to try and suck the West into this and to get the West to take countermeasures against Russia. And Russia will be trying to 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 um to avoid that from happening because it already has plenty of sanctions uh, imposed against it. <laughs> So it'd be interesting to kind of think about the foreign policy consequences and whether this is just a, a, yet another um, example of, of violations of the ceasefire, of which there are 13,400, I think, um, so far, or whether it's something which is going to be qualitatively different and could end up um, significantly changing the West's relationship with Russia. Um, but should we do the domestic politics first? Andy, you know... W- in Moscow, I imagine they'll speak because, you know, the election going on. Maybe you can say a bit about the election. But my understanding is the two main candidates are Poroshenko, who's the current uh, president and um, uh, an old favorite from podcasts on Ukraine, uh, Yulia Timoshenko, who is the perpetually almost president of, um, of, of Ukraine, coming back um, from her latest political death. Um, and who seems to be um, leading in the opinion polls and uh, has made her peace with with moscow a while ago
1: is that right yeah um well first of all um the martial law aspect yes uh ukraine didn't um declare martial law even back in 2014. Retrospectively, it was kind of, there was a lot of internal debate and criticism about that. It was called instead, the military operation was called instead an anti-terrorist operation, although the name was changed last year. Um, Even if you are fighting an insurgency, you don't call everybody a terrorist. Um, So there are certain problems of labeling and not having called a spade a spade back in 2014. But yes, this is seriously escalatory. Plus, um, Poroshenko's decree, which came from a meeting of the uh, National Security and Defense Council uh, only today, has secret clauses. Um, so nobody knows what those are. Um, but it is thought that it will be rammed through Parliament because nobody wants to look pro-Russian. Uh, there are elections for both President and Parliament next year. So that's a factor. Um In terms of domestic politics, Tymoshenko is slightly ahead in the polls, but not impressively. Uh, No one is above the mid-teens. So the outcome is still uncertain, and um, uh, you're talking about two weak candidates sort of slugging it out against each other rather than than anything sort of more more positive. Um, Poroshenko has been rising a little bit in the polls, but he's still... Uh, not even second in some of the, some of the uh, uh, polling. Um, he's campaigning on the slogan, army language faith, we go our own way. No mention of the rest of the world, uh, no mention of reform or EU or NATO. Um, so the accusation that he's exploiting uh, the situation to fit that campaign slogan, you know, um, does have some traction. Um, but so what's, what's said, why would Russia help him? What's
0: Yulia Timoshenko's slogan? Ha.
1: Well, she's been sort of stung by uh, Poroshenko accusing her of being covertly pro Russian. So she's sort of gone in the opposite direction of saying yes to NATO, yes to the EU, uh, sort of protesting too much, to quote Shakespeare almost. Yes uh, and to then, the EU. That's yes. like, yeah. Our future is in the EU, our security is in NATO, if I remember exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, but nobody believes that coming from her. Okay,
0: very good. So, so um, finishing off this martial law thing, it's escalatory, it's unusual, it's a bit suspicious. Um, is part of the goal to to delay or to stop these elections so that he can stay in power forever?
1: It might be. Um, the Constitution is very unclear about any link between elections and martial law. Um, There are some things that you can't do during a period of martial law, like change the Constitution, uh, quite rightly. Um, But no one knows what the exact implications are. We do know, though, that it would only be initially for a period of 60 days. And in theory, it could be suspended any time during those 60 days. Uh, The election is due... For president in March and for President in uh, for Parliament in October.
0: Okay, so if we switch into the foreign policy bits of this, what is Poroshenko asking the rest of the world to do?
1: Um, I mean, you've had rhetorical support. Uh, the, the aim may be, via so dramatically escalating the situation, to try and bounce the West into doing something more substantive. Uh, that is very unlikely to be naval support. It might be the kind of um, monitoring operation that Niku was talking about that would be a good thing or it might be movement on sanctions and here america is key because they're always on off on off uh, uh, between trump and uh, putin's russia look recently it was looking like they were more likely to be off than on the latest round so maybe that's part of the c- calculation to kind of push america more, back more towards additional sanctions
0: so, Niki, you've got a, a long history of studying frozen conflicts over the years. So you did your PhD uh, on the frozen conflicts. How frozen is, is the Ukrainian thing? Do you think that this could end up becoming a hot war?
2: The history of those conflicts, the immediate thing that springs into mind is that in Georgia, in 2000, before 2005, There was an OSC mission being deployed monitoring the Russian-Georgian border. At the time, Russia vetoed that mission, and the Georgians invited the European Union to take over. But because the European Union did not want to irritate Russia, it did not send observers uh, to Georgia to monitor the situation, the security situation between Russia and Georgia. And three years later, there was a war, and the Europeans ended up sending a monitoring mission anyway, but after the fact. And I always, in retrospect, thought that if after 2005 and before the Russian-Georgian war in 2008, there would have been international monitors on the ground, on the Russian-Georgian border, maybe around Sofasetia, the chances of war would have been much smaller, because basically both sides would have behaved in a different manner, in a more responsible manner, and at least the international community would have known much more about what is happening. If I transpose that lesson to Ukraine, I think whatever you think of who is to blame today, Russia or Ukraine, and whatever you think about Crimea, what Europe and the United States has learned is that a Russian Ukrainian war the next day can mean sanctions, falling trade, strategic implications for the relations with China, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And it's a major and a key Western interest to understand what is happening. And, you know, approach this without even having right answers about Russian or Ukrainian behavior. But any type of international light shed on these situations minimizes dramatically the risks of escalation, the risks of incidents uh, and the risk of the situation affecting a few days or a few weeks down the road uh, European-Russian issues and, and relations.
0: Is that not... I mean, that makes a lot of sense, Niku, and I, I remember going with you um, to a lot of the uh, contested bits of Georgia before the war took place, and um, you and even I and other people were arguing for exactly the sort of measures that you're taking, but uh, isn't the world a bit different now? Isn't it a bit too late to start sending monitoring missions into... Um, Uh, into the Sea of Azov. I mean, the monitoring missions in Georgia would have definitely worked much better before the war took place. After the war, they're not allowed to go into any of the contested territories.
2: I think, you know, such monitoring missions have basically two functions. One function is to try and restabilize a post-conflict situation. Uh, But another and even more important function, if you want, is to try and prevent a conflict. And in the situation of the Azov Sea, the situation could get much worse it will probably get much worse it will probably be on the agenda for the next you know years and years ahead uh, it will not solve by itself and now is the time to try and limit that escalatory dynamic by you know monitoring both sides what do they do who is right who is blocking what who sends what shifts Etc. Uh, Etc. Cetera, et cetera. Uh, yes, one can send monitoring missions after the fact, but uh, if they are sent before, that usually tends to uh, limit the degree to which situations escalate. Uh, and having said this, yes, the world is in a different place, but of course, Russia is not in the business of shooting down, you know, and attacking OSCE or UN or European ships. So in this sense, you know, both Russia and Ukraine would very likely, and I'm almost sure, I'm practically sure, they will be respecting any type of presence that will be there, and it would not create you know, physical dangers to these missions if they are agreed.
3: Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, world has changed, Russia's thinking has changed, Russia maybe cares less about its reputation than it did 10 years ago, uh, before and right after even the Georgia war. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, Russia still does have a stake in its important relationships, uh, not least with America. And what I picked up from Moscow last time was that there is some hope that the relations with America will now stabilize when midterm elections have passed. And you know, they said that relations have plateaued and we can start thinking of cooperation, uh, and Russia is not giving up on Trump. They, they hope that Trump will help, that well, Trump will engage with them in some sort of comprehensive dialogue. And that means that they shouldn't make it too difficult for him but things like this make it I mean they are sort of prolonging what they call civil war in America political civil war between Trump and and Democrats and and some Republicans so I I think there are still things to influence Russia with. And also, I mean, I haven't had time to look into details, but there is a full legal base. I mean, there is law of the sea that has things to say about situations like Greece. And uh, and, then we have all subscribed to it. So there are things to do.
0: Niku, maybe when you answer that, you can also tell us a bit more about what Europeans are actually saying. Has anyone um, called for the sort of mission that you're talking about? I mean, France and Germany have played this role in the Normandy process, um, engaging with Russia on that. Has it come up in that context?
2: I think that before I answer that, there's a really, really revealing interview given by the Russian deputy foreign minister two days before this incident on the 23rd of November, uh, in *Commerçant*, where he basically complains that Ukraine is making a lot of noise around the Azov Sea, is accusing Russia of false issues and is creating a problem out of nothing. Um, which, in retrospect, given that two days later Russian ships shot and rammed uh, into Ukrainian ships, uh, that interview is. Indeed, as far from what happened two days later than possible, but if you take Russia at face value and you think that Russia is really being you know framed for being irresponsible around the Kerch Sea, then you know Russia should be the one to demand such international monitoring. who would very quickly establish who is right or who is wrong. When it comes to the Europeans, the Europeans have basically been feeling that something is brewing around the Azov Sea. But that was like the headache that is supposed to come, but everyone just hoped that it would not arrive. Uh, and the Europeans have been more or less trying to make a dip- diplomatic statement here and there, but but it generally did not really make it into the foreign policy priorities of European diplomacy in the last few weeks. Now, just a week before the incident, six days before the incident, European foreign ministers met and they discussed the Azov Sea. Um, but, you know, the feeling was that everyone just hoped the Azov Sea would go away and that a couple of statements from the EU would solve the issue. And of course, it didn't. Um, so the Europeans have a bit of, a, you know, almost a kind of hopeless hope that the Azov Sea would not force itself on the agenda. I think, you know, what I also noticed is that there's a huge paradox. There's a couple of there's a few EU member states which think that it is fine to do freedom of navigation operations in the South China Sea, at the other end of the, of the world, but they are just, you know, completely afraid to think in these terms on a situation like the Azov Sea. And of course, no Europeans would be willing to go and challenge uh, what is de facto Russian control of the Kerch Strait. They are afraid to do anything that smacks of freedom of navigation operations. And I think that's also pretty revealing just how much tougher Europeans can sound on China, uh, but not on a situation like we seen.
0: Yeah, maybe uh, if we were talking to the Asia programme rather than to you, they might question how tough the EU is being on China, given that they couldn't release a statement for many days after the International Criminal Court ruled on the Philippines because it was being blocked by certain EU members of state. But, it, I'm just reading some of the statements that are coming out of the EU at the moment, which are um, not necessarily going to have the Russians very worried. We're going to do everything we can to make sure there isn't a, a wider escalation, said uh, Karim Kneissl, the um, uh, Austrian foreign minister that currently holds the presidency, who's most famous for the photos taken of her dancing with them, or in fact kneeling before President Putin at her wedding. Um, and other member states are expressing um, uh, deep concern about what's going on um, and uh, co- saying that, uh, that there shouldn't be any blockades of the, um, uh, of the Azov Sea.
2: Look, I think on the other hand, I would just like to draw everyone's attention to the economic. I, I, you know, I don't think we'll be facing a war on the sea. There will be incidents, but, but they will not escalate into a new war. The Ukraine, the Ukrainians simply do not have the boats <laughs> to do any kind of real, you know, war games or any type of threats to Russia. They will be taken away within, you know, one hour from any kind of hostile operation. But the problem is more long term. The problem is that the entire large parts of eastern Ukraine will lose their access to to, to trade and uh, exportation. Uh, possibilities and corridor through the Kerch Strait. And that is, that will be building towards even more of econo- economic crisis in eastern Ukraine, even more joblessness, even more of a kind of political and all fundamentally security problems around places like Mariupol. So this will not be immediate. This will not happen overnight. It will not happen in the next few weeks. But if the Kerch Strait is blocked for the next several years, And the Ukrainians cannot trade through the Kerch Strait. This has a major, major impact on Ukrainian stability in those parts of eastern Ukraine, which are still under the control of Kiev. I think that is something which is a bit too easily forgotten because of all this focus on the incident itself but but the implication of the tensions around the Azov sea are not just about this incident and probably the socio-economic or political implications of of this blockade are much more dangerous in in the way they will be discrediting the state of Ukraine in large swaths of of eastern Ukraine and that that is more dangerous than you know the incidents that we're witnessing today
0: OK, well, I think we're more or less out of time now, but that was a, a pretty deep dive into the situation, into the sea of Azov. And um, I think there's a very clear policy recommendation which you're pushing for. And I'm sure that we will be publishing uh, articles by you and by others on on our website making the case for this uh, international monitoring mission and uh, that you'll be traveling around Europe explaining the significance to many different European policymakers in the weeks, uh, well, in fact, probably hopefully in the hours and days ahead. Anyway, thank you very much to all of you. It's been a fascinating discussion and we can come back. To it um, as things develop. We look forward to hearing what Kadri uh, brings back from Moscow as well on her trip there um, later this week. So we have one thing left to do on this podcast, which is our bookshelf segment. Kadri, what's on your bookshelf at the moment?
3: I am reading a book of essays or articles by Katerina Shulman, who is one of the younger generation of Russian sociologists. And, and she studies Russian bureaucracy. Who are the people who join bureaucracy? Uh, why do they join it? How does that work as social lift for them and so forth? And as uh, so I'm planning to study also one fairly specific part of Russian bureaucracy, uh, namely its foreign policymakers, uh, I've found that there's a very good general background reading.
2: Great. What about you, Niku? Well, I, there's, in a sense, two publications I'd like to mention. One is I'm rereading a book written in the late '80s about the first registered Russian cyber attack against uh, U.S. military infrastructure. It's called "The Cuckoo's Egg," Cliff Stoll, and it's about uh, Russian, Soviet at the time, cyber attacks against, uh, you know, the Star Wars program of Ronald Reagan. Uh, in conducted in 1986 that's a really fun book to read and i just tried to an article more or less related to computers in the new yorker about why doctors hate their computers and i realized that i actually tend to hate my computer for the email traffic it's generating for the same reasons as doctors do but i still love my computer when i'm writing some articles or papers
1: what about you andy Uh, Well, this section is always a bit of a non sequitur, I guess, because the main part of the podcast is always so super contemporary. Um, There aren't books on what we discuss. Uh, So I'm also reading about uh, cyber war. Um, There has been long enough since the American election in 2016 for some proper academic studies of what Russia did to be finally coming out. So one book is by Kathleen Hall Jamieson. It's called Cyber War, How Russian Hackers and Trolls Helped Elect a President. Uh, So she thinks that they very much did play a a decisive role at the margin. Uh, And the other is a book called Network Propaganda, Manipulation, Disinformation and Radicalization in American Politics, uh, which doesn't um, doubt Russia's intent, but very much... um, blames the pre-existing American media ecosystem, or or, or rather double ecosystem, one of which is uh, still believes in truth (laughs) and uh, the right-wing kind of conspiracy version that doesn't.
0: Okay. And with all this talk about war and hate, I've been reading about love, a book called Distant Love by the genius and uh, world-renowned sociologist Ulrich Beck and his wife Elisabeth beck gansheim And it's a story about the sociology of long-distance relationships looking at... What they call the world families, families that shouldn't exist because they're not bound by the normal things that keep people together and which stretch across continents and contain all sorts of conflicts within them, including spanning even ethnic conflicts of the kind that we've just been talking about. So if you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please do let your friends and contacts know about it by tweeting about it, writing about it on your Facebook page or ours, but above all, by racing to the ratings and reviews page on iTunes or whatever platform you're using to listen to us to on and giving us a great review and a five-star rating. Well, we'll put links up to all the publications we mentioned on our website www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. But for now, from Kadri Leek, Niku Bobescu, Andrew Wilson, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcasts is Jonathan Hagenbrasch, and our editor is Katarina
1: Buntel-Atzina.